What's up, everyone? This is Clawing Through History, presented by Bruins Diehards. I'm your host, Christian Renzi. And I'm RJ DeMello. This week on the podcast, we talk about how the original Boston Garden came to be. history and welcome back rj what's going on you know christian hanging in there and excited to uh be back with you here how, how are you doing i'm doing well i have a new hat this week i am wearing a winter hat because it is getting cold so uh thank you feeling good <laughs> and so then what, what are you what are you drinking what's in the glass this time so you pointed out before we started recording that uh, it's a repeat offender. So it's it's stock by Proclamation Ale Company. Shout out to Proclamation. We yep. should make this like a segment. We should, you know, and now for what are you drinking brought to you by? Someone sponsor us, please. This could be you. Yeah. <laughs> like you tell us. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, you know, this week I am I'm drinking a IPA from Freem. Uh, it's a brewery in Hood River. It's a wonderful brewery. Highly recommend you check it out if you're ever around these neck of the woods. But I'm drinking out of a uh, a Guinness brand pint glass that you can't really see it, but it has my name etched into the pint glass. Ah, very nice. They came to uh, Muse Tavern in Rhode Island. And, Shout out. Like, I don't know, some kind of giveaway or something. And here we go. Cheers. Nice, yeah. Muse Tavern, a staple of my my college years. That's right. That is right. Yeah, have you been back? Uh, since college, I think I went back like a year after, but no, not really since then. Um, I just remember them taking away my friend's fake ID. Hey, I won't won't well say which friends. <laughs> well done. Enforce the law. Yeah, it was like literally, I think it was like a week before his 21st birthday too. So he wasn't that upset. But then my other friend, like his ID was real, but they thought his was fake too. Oh, yeah. So they tried to take his away too, but you know, it worked out in the end. Yeah. I get that, you know, in my travels now, having moved around a few places, the uh, the Rhode Island I, the Rhode Island ID confuses a lot of people. They are like, this is not real. <laughs> Well, they, uh, they're different than they used to be, too. Now they're, like, flimsy, and they look like Massachusetts a bit more now, So, which people don't like. They, we don't want to be like Massachusetts here, okay? This is a podcast about a team in Massachusetts, Christian. What are you That's about? true, but I'm not from there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, this is but, for Rhode Island Bruins fans only. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, how are, how are things going out west? Is it? Uh, I know we're not telling people what time of year it is, but how are things going out there? <laughs> It's it's going well, you know. Uh, the Kraken to date it a little bit. The Kraken have officially played a game, um, so the Pacific Northwest has hockey again. I mean, it's awesome. NHL level hockey, I should say. Again, Portland Winter Hawks are here in in Portland. Uh, a, a team I plan to go check out a game, but uh, so yeah, NHL hockey's back in the Pacific Northwest. But yeah, yeah. At the time of this recording, we're about. I think most teams have played around five 
to seven games uh, of the NHL season. I noticed that the Kraken, uh, they raised a 1917 Stanley Cup champion Seattle Metropolitans banner (laughs) the other day. So let's just start raising banners for every team that ever existed, you know, like. It's not as bad as the Colts. Remember what they did? Was it the Colts that did the runner-up banner a few years ago? <laughs> I think it was AFC runner-up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! You so know, I just I want to see like you know the like the New York Rangers, the team before them were the were the New York Americans, I believe. Like raise any you know any trophies they won up into the rafters. You know, let, let's just go all out and do anything the city's ever won in the sport. Get it up there. Yeah, you know, you just want you know, some nice decorations on the ceiling. So, but uh, now, what if we... the Kraken end up going and winning a bunch of Stanley Cups? Do they? Do you think they like run out of room and they take it down? I mean, I would, but I, I don't think the Kraken are going to win anytime soon. I don't think they're as good as Las Vegas was when they first came into the league. Having said that, I haven't watched any Kraken hockey, not even one second of it. So, ready to take, ready to make a hot take based on nothing. <laughs> I have no nothing to back this up, but they're going to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know? Um, it's it's my week this week, so I got a story for you. Now, do you know what we're talking about? I know a little bit of it, but why don't you introduce it? So, this week on the podcast, we're going to go through how the original Boston Garden was built. So it feels at this point that I am like too addicted to the old Boston Garden. It's my background, wrote an episode on the blackout there from 88, and now here we are. Uh, but yeah, I got I got interested on kind of, you know, it, how, how did it end up? This arena meant so much to the city of Boston and Bruins fans from any time before us, really, Christian, uh, yep. that how did he get there and where did, you know, where did it come from type thing? So uh, part of it was a story I had read, which was the like why it was built the way it was. I said this, I think, on the first episode that, you know, that like te- uh, a boxing promoter wanted you to be able to see the fight, the sweat on the fighter's brow from any seat. And that was another thing that led me to say, is that real or like, what's the deal here? So. I went digging, um, and probably the most digging I've done, honestly. Like, this is, I'm talking the New York Times, like, archives, the archives of the uh, Montreal Gazette, and more. And and somebody's actually, uh, like, PhD thesis. So I've gone all in, so. I I know it's 2021 and people don't do this anymore, but I picture you like in the library with those giant newspaper, like scroll things. (laughs) In the microfilm thing. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I wish, I wish. Well, this is very exciting. I know this building, like you said, means a lot to older Bruins fans. Uh, They always say like this new building, the Fleet Center, TD Garden, doesn't have quite the same character as the old one so it's gonna be great yeah we gotta get uh you know the dads on the pod one day to talk about the old garden and some stories but i was on the phone with my dad and he was telling me stuff from going there and being by the concession stand and there goes a rat scurrying away <laughs> and you're like oh but then he talks about it like it's the best arena that's ever been built martian <laughs> was, was it martian that was scurrying away yeah yeah he, he was him <laughs> 
Uh, and he talked about having a seat behind a pillar for a game. <laughs> and so he'd be like leaning to one side, and then the puck would go down this way. He'd have to lean to the other side of the pillar. <laughs> so it had its faults, but that's in part because it opened in 1928. So that's where our, our story starts today. Shall I, shall I dive in? Let's do it. Let's dive in. All right. So remember the date. We've got Saturday, November 17th, 1928. Herbert Hoover has just been elected president of the United States only 11 days before. Big mistake. (laughs) They didn't know it yet. (laughs) The first machine-sliced and wrapped loaf of bread has just been sold. And the world's first working all-electronic television has just been unveiled to the press. Wow. So it's wild times in America in November of 1928. It also happens to be when the old Boston Garden opened its doors for the first time. So the Bruins had been around since 1924. So they actually played their first four seasons at what was known then as Boston Arena. It's still in use today by Northeastern University under the name of Matthews Arena. And according to their website, it's the world's oldest multi-purpose athletic building and houses the world's oldest artificial ice sheet. And so we talked about this on a previous episode, I think, Christian. And you, have you said you've been there? I've been outside of it. <laughs> I've never been inside. Uh, my fiancé did, did go to Northeastern, uh, so I have a little bit of a connection, but no, never been inside. So... So what is the, is the outside all remodeled or is it still have like a, some charm to it where you know it's an old building? I would say you can tell it's an old building. Yeah. The, I think the entrance is pretty new, like really new within the last few years, but you can definitely tell it's old. I don't think you would ever guess. Do you know what year it was built? 1910. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So you would never guess that this building was built in 1910. The arena opened in April of 1910 for an ice show. So how do we get, how do we go from Boston arena to Boston garden? From the best I can tell, it is the story of three men, and uh, in true American fashion, money. So we start with Boston Bruins founder and owner at the time, Charles Francis Adams. You know this guy. Mm Mm-hmm. You remember how the Bruins were in the Adams division from 1974 to 1993? I do. It's named after this guy. It's the Charles Francis Adams is the old Adams division that we were in. So Adams was born in Newport, Vermont in 1876. Now Newport is basically Canada. It's, it, it may as well be Canada. So it's no surprise the man was a hockey fan. After moving up in the grocery business, he moved to the Boston area and he eventually became the head of First National Stores. which, uh, I don't know, apparently is one of the major grocery chains in the U.S. back then. We wouldn't know them. Uh, their brand of stores closed in the early 1990s. Uh, so, you know, to us, 
figment of the imagination to maybe many people listening, they might be yelling at us. How do you not know about this grocery chain? But it's like stop and shop. Yeah. You know, an old school stop and shop. He worked his way up there. Uh, so when, while he was running the grocery chain, loved checking out amateur hockey at the 3,500 seat Boston arena. So he would go to the old Boston arena, now Matthews and check out amateur hockey games and, uh, he even then, in 1924, ventured up to Montreal to take in the Stanley Cup Finals between the Canadiens and the Calgary Tigers. After making that trek and witnessing that, he really had his mind set on bringing professional hockey to Boston. we got to bring this in. No more just amateur. Let's make it professional. And so everything happened pretty quickly from there, actually. Like, it's a... It's a bit tricky to pin down exactly how quickly because I've found some conflicting information. So the Hockey Hall of Fame website says that Adams got his franchise by summer. The Bruins history section of the NHL website says the date was actually November 1st, which is clearly Mm. not summer. According to that same page, it was for a rumored fee of $15,000 or about $240,000 in today's money. That's still, like, very cheap. Yes. Very, very cheap. Uh, And regardless of when exactly it happened in those dates, what we do know for certain, the Bees played their first NHL game December 1st, 1924. So the season started in December, or they came into the season late? I would guess it started in December. They they didn't have as many games to play back then, right? right? Only so many teams. So they're, uh, the Boston Bruins are an expansion team. That's right. <laughs> December of 1924. So, yeah, within the calendar year of 24, he goes to the Stanley Cup, says, we need to bring a professional team to Boston, makes it happen, and puts a team on the ice. Hmm. Insanity. Um, within a few seasons, the Bruins outgrew their modest accommodations. They, they went right into Boston Arena as, at the start, and they outgrew it. Again, it was only 3,500 seats. Uh, and so for some context, the Canadians had just moved to the Montreal Forum and that had more than 9,000 seats. So, you know, at the time we're talking, you want to have nine, 10,000 seats for an NHL team. Maybe, you know, you want a bigger arena than 3,500. And so, uh, what Adams wanted was a world-class venue for his beloved team that surpass anything seen in the league so far. So take the forum, blow it out of the water. How do you make that happen? Well, it's a tricky one, and this is where Homer Loring comes in. Homer Loring was born in Newton in the fall of 1875. In April of 1924, he was elected as a director of the Boston and Maine Railroad. By August, he was chairman of the B&M Executive Committee. The company just happened to be the owners and operators of Boston's North Station. And so I think you see where I'm going with this. Put an arena on top of North Station. By the time Loring joined Boston and Maine, their station on Causeway Street was more than 30 years old, and it was in need of an upgrade. Uh, It turned out to be quite the pivotal moment in Boston Bruins history. Uh, And so that's because James Walsh, at least according to... James Walsh himself, in an interview with the Boston Globe, so take this with a grain of salt. This is the guy saying he did something. 
he had the idea to go a bit bigger than just a regular old train station. So why not add a hotel and auditorium to the complex using the air rights to the station? The idea was simple enough. People in the suburbs hop on B&M trains after dinner, see a show right at North Station, hop back on the trains after it's over, voila. It's an idea to create a new revenue stream for the railroad. Of course, Loring and Company, I like the sound of that. Now, one issue cropped up, uh, raised by one of Boston and Maine shareholders, who actually filed an injunction based on the legality that uh, a railroad could be uh, could construct non-railroad buildings. This shareholder was like, "Why am I in part like paying to build not a railroad? I, I have I have shares in a railroad company. What is this?" And so, illustrating just how much a large venue, uh, a, a large arena that could house more than just sports, was wanted. Uh, the Massachusetts legislature actually passed a bill expanding the corporate powers of Boston and Maine to ensure that construction could happen. So there was a lot more at play than just uh, the Bruins wanted a hockey team. The, you know, people in power also saw it as an opportunity to get a, a world-class venue in to have concerts and uh preachers and and uh, probably mainly on their mind political rallies so okay uh there's a lot of interest at play to get this bill and built so this is late 1920s uh, the economy is doing quite well until a few years yeah, later, right? It's, it's about like 1926, 1927, like in that range uh, that this is going down. So, yeah, it's it's still doing well then, right? Yeah, roaring 20s, right? <laughs> yeah, if we have our history class right. So so the the building itself, you can make the argument it was not built for the Boston Bruins, it was just part of the reason it was built. Yeah, I would say it was, the Bruins were a part, and so Adams really wanted to make it happen and work to bring partners involved, but as we'll see in a little bit, um, they were one of the many ideas for the place. So yeah, like, they wanted a space for the city, essentially. Like, there was no big hall of the size this would be to house things in. Yeah. And so they were looking for that and they thought it would be good for, you know, business in the city overall with the Bruins being a component of that. So they already had, and they already had Fenway park on the other side of the city. Cause that's 1912. So now they want something because they're kind of on opposite sides of the city. If you think about it. So like now North station has something I get it. Yeah. And you know, frankly, you're only going to have so many events in Fenway Park uh, weather-wise and stuff, right? Like, Let me give you a quick fun fact because Matthews Arena is Northeastern's arena where the Bruins first started. Also at Northeastern, I don't remember the exact name of it, the first World Series was played right there at Northeastern. Really? Yes, there was a ballpark there. 
I forgot everything else except for that <laughs> fact, but it's called World Series Way. When you go to Northeastern, it's there. They said it on the college tours because one day I was walking Northeastern and I joined a tour. I was not a college student. So <laughs> I think it was, or like I was a college student, but I was going to URI. I just was walking around the city. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. No one was like, get this guy out of here. <laughs> I'm like wearing my Rody Rams shirt. <laughs> but yeah, just a fun fact. Wow. Northeastern, you know, school of, of firsts of history, sports history. Yep. Harvard's got nothing on it. So uh, as we were just talking about, yeah, the city was growing and attracting musical acts, preachers, boxing, wrestling, and of course, a good old large political rally. Uh, so yeah, it meant revenue for the city of Boston, state of Massachusetts. And so everybody wanted to make it happen. Loring and the board get to move forward with their giant complex, but they're a railroad company. They don't know a thing about running an arena. <laughs> and so this is in part where the famous Tex Rickard gets involved and actually how the garden got its name. So really quickly before we get more into Tex, I want to give a shout out to Michael LaFlash uh, because his thesis the Demolition of Boston Garden and Examination of Sports Stadia and Historic Preservation was instrumental in understanding uh, that part of the story I just mentioned with Loring and uh, the sort of railroad using the air rights and all that. Uh, so thank you for going to school and being smart, doing all the in-depth research for me. Appreciate <laughs> it. And I owe you a beer if I ever get to meet you, Michael. Something. And come on the podcast. Yeah. It was, a, it was a very fascinating and very long thesis. Uh, so there's plenty more to talk about there. But it definitely helped understand that aspect of the building with the air rights and what the railroad was planning to do. So on to Tex Rickard. And he is a complicated character. So to start, his real name is George. And he's born in January of 1870. So he's actually older than both Loring and Adams. Uh, he is raised in Texas, unsurprisingly. And he was at one time or another a cowboy, town marshal, gold prospector, owner of a gambling hall, just a straight gambler. And he finally settled on being a boxing promoter. As you do. Uh, he was pretty damn good at it, though. And he became the promoter of the legendary Jack Dempsey, which is a name I'm sure you recognize. Uh, but this guy was booking all the huge boxing fights of first million dollar purse and two million dollar and all this stuff he was the promoter so uh he actually made the front page of the new york times on july 13th 1920 when he signed a 10-year lease on the second madison square garden uh you know that there's been more than one do you know how many that there has been over time i'm gonna guess three four Oh, the current Madison Square Garden is Madison Square Garden number four. And so this front page article from 1920, he signed a 10 year lease on the second Madison Square Garden. The first two were actually the only two to be in Madison Square in New York. That's where sort of the name comes from originally. It was actually in Madison Square. Um, and then the third and fourth moved out of there with the fourth of course being where it is now uh on top of the old pen or the current but demolishing the old 
beautiful Penn Station to be put there. So, yeah, from what I hear, it's New Yorkers' worst nightmares, Penn Station. <laughs> it is not great, though. I haven't been since they opened a new a new hall or something that actually you can like see light from outside, which is ni- nice. And so, you know, it sounds like it's maybe getting better, but uh, I haven't been to that version. So. I've been told that uh, New Yorkers don't like when we call our garden the garden. <laughs> <laughs> well, they need to get over it because it's the same dude that named him. And it's like, you know, what do you want to do? They're both the garden. This either that your dude that founded your team founded your arena and North station is nicer than Penn station. So, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So Tex, he got the 10 year lease from the owners of the garden at the time, the New York life insurance company, which is important because that's who ends up uh, saying we're going to build a, office building here and you can't have a sports arena here anymore. So Rickard, within two years, he was actually out at the, uh, at Madison Square Garden after being indicted on four counts of abduction and assault against underage girls. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> yep. Uh, four different girls ranging in age, like 13, 14, 15, uh, step forward with accounts of abduction, of abuse. One was found on a prize fighter's ranch. Um, the New York Times has the, you know, the prosecuting attorney quoted as saying he believed the girls and brought them forward and all this. And um, in the end, he was found not guilty on the first indictment after just uh, 90 minutes of a jury deliberation. Jeez. And... After that, the other three were pretty much kind of just dropped uh, with, the, with the first one going that way. So uh, Rickard's lawyer claimed he would never return to sports, would spend the rest of his life finding the person who like framed him for this. Uh, by 1923, so within a year later, he was promoting boxing matches again. So uh, the claim of like, you know, spending the rest of life to find somebody who framed him was BS. And he's back to promoting boxing. So uh, it was that same year in 1923 that he filed to create the new Madison Square Garden Corporation with the intent of building the third iteration of the garden, this time not in Madison Square, but up on 49th and 8th, kind of right by Times Square. Uh, Madison Square Garden, or MSG3, was completed in November of 1925, but Tex wanted more. And he was looking to build gardens for boxing around the country so he could just have a network of these arenas to host boxing matches in. So when a few guys from Boston came calling to see if he wanted in on a new uh, arena there, he answered the call. Now, a quick, quick aside on further hockey history with Tex. He starts the the Madison Square Garden 3. The New York Americans start playing there. They're wildly successful. Despite him selling them, they would be the only hockey team to play in that arena. The next year, he starts another hockey team to play in that arena. And they are immediately referred to as Texas, like Tex apostrophe S, Rangers. Like, 
I believe Texas Rangers is already a team. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe not. You know, they're the New York Rangers, but that's how it's Rangers because of like a Texas Ranger. Yeah, but what about the baseball team? Did they not exist yet? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, this is not a baseball podcast, so I don't know. <laughs> no, sir. They are much, much newer than that. Uh, they, when did they start? 1961. So the New York Rangers, they were started by a guy from Texas. Is this what you're saying? Yeah, they were started by a guy from Texas and they got the nickname the Rangers because he was Tex from Texas and uh, that name stuck. So Texas Rangers, you know, went out there and played and ended up being the team from New York that stuck around. Huh. Yeah, I guess if you think about it, it makes no sense to call them the New York Rangers. There's no Rangers in New York. That is a Texas thing. Yeah, so our uh, our histories are linked more than we know. Huh. Between us and, and the New Yorkers and the Garden and the New York Rangers. So. so Tex was the guy with the experience operating a venue. He was the guy that could make sure the place was packed for more than just Bruins games. So he was the guy, like, they wanted in on this 25-year lease for the space. Well, it was the Madison Square Garden Corporation, but... You get my point. It was Tex was running the show, but Madison Square Garden, Madison Square Garden Corporation, was the one in on the lease technically. And so this is from the story that ran in the New York Times on November sixteenth, nineteen twenty-seven. So that is almost exactly one year before it would open the Garden. It reads marking probably the first instance in history where a railroad has allied itself in a business venture with the sporting world. Announcement was made yesterday by Homer Loring, chairman of the Boston Main Railroad, that plans have been completed for construction of a new North Station building in Boston on the site of the present station, which will include a large convention coliseum, a sports arena, a hotel, a 14-story office building, and a distributing terminal. When the project is completed, the Boston and Maine will lease the Coliseum and Sports Arena to an operating group including Boston businessmen headed by Charles F. Adams and H.R. Hardwick, who will have as associates G.L. Tex Rickard, John S. Hammond, and W.F. Carey, officials of the Madison Square Garden Corporation. And so, you, you know, we talked about it. You remember the fact from that uh, first episode I shared uh, about how the garden and its like intimacy and wanting to be close in. Yep. That's where Tex and the MS Street group really came in. They helped push that design, um, you know, and also potentially influenced by the size of the air rights that the building could occupy might have also helped with its intimacy factor. Um, but to be very tight, perfect for boxing, uh, was was a big goal. But little did everyone know. It'd go on to serve more of a purpose as tremendous home advantage for the Bruins and the Celtics uh, for more than 65 years. So, you know, shout out to boxing. But in the end, it was the Bruins and then the Celtics who really benefited from that design. So from what I'm understanding, uh, this was one of the first arenas to be, be designed on top of a train station, essentially, right? I mean, Madison Square Garden is, but like... Other than that, at that time, nothing else of this size? That's a good question. You know, I, I don't want to speak out of turn. It feels like yes, but 
Um, and at that time, yeah, MSG wasn't on top of a train station. That only happened in the 60s when the fourth one was built. So like, um, you know, it certainly feels like something that was at least un- very unusual for the time to yeah. where they had to pass a special law and, and do all the stuff like to, to allow for it. Um, but then I don't know, you know, like the New York City subway opened in, I think, 1904 and there was buildings, you know, above that. So what, you know, what's the, yeah, that's true. Plus you have like, like Yankee stadium, I guess there was a train. Although I don't know if Yankee stadium was around yet. That's above ground at that Yankee though. Yeah. Interesting. And to be fair, when they, the first subway line that opened, it was done in a method where they, uh, basically dug out the space for it, put everything in and then covered it with like the road or whatever. So, um, probably wasn't too many buildings over that originally either. So uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe we can get, uh, our good friend, uh, Michael from, from his thesis, you know, get him on the pod and answer this question. Like, yeah. Also Boston is the oldest subway system in America. The T is the oldest. When did it open? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I, come I, with the facts, Christian. I just know it is the oldest. Boston Tea. Oh, shit. Boston Tea Party? Boston Tea. Tell me the website's down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Delays history, in the website. Yeah, really. Yeah. The history of the. M- oh, this is way too far back. This is 1600s. <laughs> yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Let's keep going. <laughs> History of the MBTA, the first thing that comes up is 1897. There you go. 1897. Only a year after that article ran in the Times, uh, the garden was ready for business. And we arrived back to where we started, Saturday, November 17th, 1928. So there's actually not a Bruins game that night. It is uh, an opening ceremony with a performance of taps for the... uh, Fallen soldiers. There's a singing of the national anthem, uh, a greeting from the Massachusetts Secretary of State, and more. All before the main event, a boxing match huh. between Dorchester's own Dick Honeyboy Finnegan and Andre Routis, or Routi, whatever, however you pronounce it in French. Sorry, y'all. Uh, of France. We. Oui. Uh, with Honeyboy going on to uh, win the fight, by the way, so. Good vibes on night one of the garden with the Dorchester kid winning. <laughs> but again, kind of showing you the priority there. The first night, the main event was a boxing match. And boxing was a huge sport at the time, right? Yes. Absolutely, yes. So, yeah. The Bruins uh, wouldn't make their garden debut until three days later. It was actually on November 20th. Uh, but from reports... It was an eventful one. I'm going to read to you now from the Montreal Gazette. The headline is, Crowd of 17,000 Watch Canadians Down Boston 1-0. Subheadings of Silvio Mantha scores only goal of the game in lone rush in second period. Uh, Record-gathering new garden packed to rafters as huge throng breaks down doors and rushes through police lines. What? (laughs) This is a special to the Gazette. So Boston, November 20th, 
Canadians of Montreal, the flying Frenchmen of hockey, spoiled the opening of the gigantic new garden tonight by beating the Boston Bruins 1-0 before a crowd of 17,000 people, the largest that ever saw a hockey game in the city. The capacity of the garden was supposed to be 15,000, but a crowd of thousands of wild hockey fans, unable to buy either seats or standing room, stormed the doors, swept aside police lines, and flowed into the building, filling every inch of standing space and almost bulging out onto the ice. Windows were smashed and doors were broken in the wild assault on the building. Bostonians, they never change. <laughs> it is <laughs> doubtful if there has been so much determination on the part of anybody, any body of people to force their way into any structure since the fall of the Bastille. That's a little dramatic. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like the french Three revolution calls there. the police were sent in an hour before the game and the crowd became so dense on all sides of the building that the hockey players themselves had trouble getting in the game was started 25 minutes late with half the crowd still battling to get in through the close the close packed throng of standees mostly non-paying who jammed every aisle and exit it was the maddest crowd that ever saw an athletic event in boston intensely partisan and therefore Desolated to the last degree when Silvio Manth, the tall defenseman of the Habitants, stormed into the picture and scored the only goal of the game. The goal that blasted every Boston hope and added another hard-won fray to a long list of victories which the French team has scored in organized hockey. I am just disgusted by what you just read. <laughs> this journalism is terrible. It is biased. <laughs> I do not care for this writing from the Montreal Gazette. <laughs> but it's a pretty like epic scene to imagine. First it, Bruins game, you know, Charles Adams is there, I'm sure, excited, and Tex Rickard's there, and then the glasses break in and the doors and stuff, and people are rushing in. It must have just been ridiculous. They probably prefer that over no one showing up. That is true. Create a buzz. <laughs> of course. Game starts late. And of course, the first game there is a loss to Montreal because the Bruins lost so much, so yeah. much to the Montreal Canadiens. So it's yeah. just funny because that that writing is by someone who clearly despises the Boston Bruins. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> it is such like Homer, Homer writing about this game, without a doubt. I never knew what the first game was. That's really cool. That's how the uh, the old garden got its maiden Bruins voyage, a mini riot. So, from what I understand, this garden was partially built by a man from Texas, who also started the New York Rangers, and a grocer from Vermont. Yeah, and the railroad barons that were. Seeing some dollar signs. Yeah. And I guess the politicians in Massachusetts who wanted another venue to be able to get some revenue. That's cool. You know, that it, the fact that it lasted, lasted from then until 1995, I mean, that's a long time for an indoor sports arena to be a thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a fond, fond place that's talked about. And I think that's why I gravitate towards it is because I hear all these stories from people about how special of a place it was. 
like I was saying with my dad, like he could see a rat scurrying away from the concession stand, but he loved it. You know, like right. it didn't matter that it was old. It didn't matter. It mattered that it was home and that it right. brought that advantage to these teams. And, you know, it's something really cool about that. And so if anybody has a garden story out there, I, I want to hear it. You know, like I want to, I, I would love to get people to submit their Boston garden stories and we can put them all together into like an oral history of the place. Cause they actually sort of did that when it closed. They, um, there was a program. I found the video on YouTube. It is, uh, banner years, the official history of the Boston garden. It was the 1997 Emmy award winner for best sports special. Uh, I believe it was from like WBZ in Boston and they interview all these former players and journalists and all this stuff. And it's just like the, the love for the place is so apparent. And so there, I would love to get that perspective, but from everyday Bruins fans, you know, like that's a, that's a great feature with like really big names, but like to so many people, it meant a lot as well that we're just everyday people that would show up and sneak into games and all that stuff. So, yeah. And I think that now like there's this corporate quality to new arenas that are built that back then there wasn't like, I mean, it was built by like these like tycoons and rich guys, obviously, but like it wasn't called the Dunkin' Donut Center. Like this is Boston garden. Now, it was called Boston Garden because it's shortened. They wanted it to be like Boston Madison Square Garden. And that they <laughs> dropped the Madison Square and just did Boston Garden. So it was that group, but they didn't sell it to somebody else. Right. One. But then, yeah, like right now where sports is today, they realize that where they make more money is by selling luxury boxes and those experiences to companies to entertain, to this and that. So they focus on that. And don't necessarily care as much about getting people into the balcony for 20 bucks. You'll see a lot of teams would rather have ticket prices be higher and sell fewer seats because they make more money. The thing too now is like they've, the TD garden is the same size that it was two years ago, but they've added more seats into the building. So now you're paying more money to sit in a smaller seat and be uncomfortable for the entire game. Like, have you or been, you can get a nice, uh, luxury box that will give you space. Yeah. 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 But if you want a six pack, it's $80 in the luxury box, by the way. Have you been to the the garden in the last like three years? No, I'm trying to think the last time I went to the to the garden, the new garden. The seating is pretty bad. It was probably for a Celtics game, I think, actually. But it's been a while. Yeah, it's not good. It's like being on a a Spirit Airline flight or something. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable for the entire game. And and I don't know. I mean it. I mean, I never went to that garden, but I know that this current one does not have the character that that one did. It's it's sort of like, um, it's kind of like I hear people talk about, forgive me for mentioning the name here, but the new Yankee Stadium. 
Right. Like the new Yankee Stadium, and I've been to it, and I hate it. Yeah. And it is like, it's very, yeah, like there's a sushi restaurant behind home plate. And I'm like, this is, it's that corporate experience that they're looking for and not like, yeah, this um, uh, authentic fan atmosphere, but rather, you know, what can we sell for an inflated price to make a better margin on our, our stuff. So, and another good example of that was the, the Barclays center when they had the Islanders there and there was a SUV in the stands for some reason. <laughs> that place was not built for hockey. It was, I think I told the story before where there was more Bruins fans there than Islanders fans and Bergeron scored a hat trick and they delayed the game because there's too many hats on the ice. Like it was dumb. Uh, and so I'm glad to see them go back. Up, was the but... car, was the car in the uh, stands when you were there? Yeah. And there was seats. Talk about obstructed view. There were seats that couldn't see the ice because it wasn't designed for hockey. Right. And that car was in the corner where like, some of the best seats in hockey are in the freaking <laughs> corner. <laughs> I'm oh, happy man. for Islanders but, fans. I'm happy they got their new rink on Long Island. <laughs> now, but getting back to the old garden for a sec. That opened in November of 28. Opened with a riot or like first Bruins game, like a bit of a riot. And that year is when the Bruins went on to win their first Stanley Cup. Yeah, 1929. Eddie Shaw. Good vibes all around in the garden. Yeah, so they won in 29 and then didn't win again until... Hold on a second. They won in the early 30s? Stanley Cup wins. Let's see. Oh, jeez, I almost spilled my beer. Uh, 29, then 39 was the next 39. one. So 10-year difference. 41, 70, 72, 2011. Yeah. Not enough for how old they are. <laughs> Perhaps a uh, topic for another day, but part of the way that they were able to go from starting in 24 to winning in 29 was Charles, uh, Charles Francis Adams, the, the owner, um, he bought the entire like Western Canadian Hockey League for $300,000. Damn. And that's how we got Eddie Shore and players like that was because they're in that league and we took him. Uh, that- because the way like the player system worked out teams had affiliations with like major junior teams or uh, sorry actually at this time it was like a geographic thing too like basically within like so many miles of your city you had rights but the talent pool within 50 miles of montreal is way different than the talent pool within 50 miles of boston right you know? like so it was an unfair advantage for the canadian teams so then Charles Francis Adams buys the WCHL and gets those players, but also there's too many players that just go on the Bruins. So actually the other American teams benefited from his purchase of that league and got some star players to their team. So teams like the Rangers and in Chicago, Detroit, like their talent pool went up in part because of his purchase of that league. As a hero. Um, to, to like get talent in because they were like, we're getting killed out here, you know? So yeah. Well, another fun fact about Charles Adams before we wrap up the episode in 1927, Adams became the minority owner and vice president of the Boston Braves. This is not hockey. The Braves who are now the modern day Atlanta Braves who are in the world series currently. 
played less than two miles from the Red Sox at Fenway Park. Um, at the time, Adam at the time of Adam's purchase, the Braves had been enduring uh, several years of being bad. They were mediocre, so that affects ticket sales. So the owner of the team at the time was uh, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce this, Emil Fuchs. Yep, something like that. Um, so in the early 1930s, he was looking for a way to get more fans in the stands. So, meanwhile, in New York, Babe Ruth was coming towards the end of his baseball career. So he wasn't quite the player he once was, but Babe Ruth, he's going to sell tickets. That's going to happen. So to get Ruth to agree to play for the Braves, Fuchs, the owner, agreed to make him vice president and assistant manager and even give him a share of the team's profits. So when Ruth got here, he had a great opening day for the team. He scored all four runs to win over the Giants the New York Giants at the time, a baseball team. The good play wouldn't last, though. Um, He was not in shape. He couldn't run to the bases. His fielding was bad. And a Braves pitcher even refused to play with Babe Ruth in the lineup. So that's his own teammate. Oh, man. So uh, Babe Ruth also discovered that his role as assistant vice president that he was promised was a name-only and also that the share of the team's profits that he was supposed to receive, that was a lie as well. So this oh, owner, not Charles Adams, the owner, uh, lied to him. But following the Ruth debacle, Charles Adams told Fuchs that he either had to step down or sell his shares. So on July 31st, 1935, Fuchs would forfeit his shares to Adams. So just a fun fact, Adams and Babe Ruth have a connection as well. Look at that. Yeah. Folks, we are just full of them. We, we've got all the fun facts. That is it for this week's episode of Clawing Through History. Now, don't forget to subscribe, drop a rating, you know, wherever you get your podcast, help us out. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Clawing Through Hist. That's uh, at Clawing, T-H-R-U-H-I-S-T. Uh, do you have an idea for an episode or a story about the old Boston Garden like we talked about? Drop us a line at clawingthroughhistory at gmail.com. And this show is produced and written by Christian Renzi and RJ DeMello. It's edited by Christian, so he officially does more work than I do. Our uh, theme music is by uh, Strip Mall. What song is it, Christian? Uh, We All Have Plus Things by Strip Mall. There we go. Go check them out. And uh, until next time, go Bruins. Bruins.